Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hope and Anchor Church. It's great to be here with you this morning. Uh, there's a certain joy that comes from uh, being with my church family and just uh, worshiping our King Jesus, opening His Word, and, and finding that God, through the centuries, and even now, is, is speaking to us. That God is uh, eager to meet with us and to guide us uh, in the path of righteousness, that we would become, each of us, and together, more and more like Jesus. Uh, how cool is that? That we just don't have ancient writings that are uh, uh, pointing our attention back to uh, centuries uh, before Christ or the early centuries of, uh, after Christ was born and saying, hey, just uh, use this as an example. It's actually living and active. That with the, through the Holy Spirit, the words we read in Scripture actually meet us here and now uh, in particular ways, uh, in general and specific ways. And so we can look like today, we're going to look at Gideon once again. We can look at a story, kind of a fairly obscure story um, from thousands of years ago and learn important lessons for how we ought to live our lives now, how we can have a paradigm shift in uh, our uh, thinking uh, in the world and really find that uh, God is at work, that God is faithful to complete the work He has begun in us. And sometimes that calls us in unexpected directions, challenging directions. It challenges some of our assumptions uh, and what have you. But um, if we're going to be faithful and we're going to follow Jesus, we'll find that we're not the first ones to do it. That there's many who have trod this path before us and that the path of the faithful uh, beckons us as well. So today is uh, week number... Oh man, I should probably look at this before I bring that up. Week five. I never look before I bring it up. So week five in our uh, Everyday People series, our study, our learning adventure uh, through the life of Gideon, the life and times of Gideon, which we find in the first part of the book of Judges. So uh, we're going to visit that today, and today's message is called Mighty Hero. Mighty Hero. Uh, for those of you who, who uh, have met me before, you might know that I'm a pastor. And, uh, yeah, surprise, oh, wait, what? You know, uh, yeah, it's true. And pastoral work, which I've been doing for, I don't know, 23 years? I don't know, over 20 years, we'll say that. Pastoral work, it requires much of a pastor. There's a, a specific set of skills that comes with being a pastor. Uh, a pastor is called upon to be many things. A pastor is called upon to be a teacher, uh, to be a counselor, to be a nonprofit CEO, to be a, uh, <laughs> to be a janitor. Uh, to be a priest, to be a uh, referee, an event planner, a barista, a friend, lots of things. Uh, the list goes on. You've seen your pastor at work, uh, you've, whether here or somewhere else. We wear many hats. When I was a youth pastor, my first introduction into ministry, I found out that uh, I wasn't a, I'm not a statistician or anything, but I estimated that a youth pastor spends 50% of his time teaching and the other, uh, well, 50, the other 50% setting up chairs. I mean, if you've done youth ministry, you know how much of your life is spent setting up and tearing down chairs, right? But there's unexpected tasks that come along with the pastoral work, some of which you don't know about when you first get into it. But anyway, a pastor does many things. Along the way, amidst all the strange situations and the odd hours that come with pastoral work, a pastor gains certain skills and gains valuable observations. Valuable observations. Inevitably, a capable pastor becomes a student of human nature. A pastor, day in and out, is watching his people and watching the people around him, and you start to become a student of human nature. Pastors spend their days, more or less, watching their parishioners, watching their parishioners live their lives, watching their people as they are buffeted by their needs, by their wants, 
and by their circumstances. We see those in our care, we see them rise and fall in the face of challenges and temptations. We see our people grow and shrink back in the face of God's work in their life. And here's something I've, I've observed about human nature. I didn't discover this, I observed this about human nature. We human beings, we like to think, we like to think that we are driven by vision. We, like, we, we, we fancy that we are motivated uh, solely by a deep sense of purpose and that we are animated by our high ideals and our lofty aims. But instead, almost everything we actually do in life is not motivated or driven by those things. They are at root motivated by a real or perceived sense of what? Need. We're driven by our sense of need. That that which we need, whether it's real or just perceived, actually when it comes down to it, that which we do or don't do is primarily motivated by a sense of need. Whether it's, whether it's a desire for survival or for comfort or for advantage, we are driven by these deep-seated impulses to get what we need. We pursue good and pleasing things. And we avoid bad and painful things. Yeah, that's pretty basic, right? We know how it is. The pleasure principle. I mean, if it makes us feel good, we pursue it. If it makes us feel bad, we avoid it. Mix, now take all that, mix that human characteristics uh, of need, of being driven by need, of our need for comfort and safety with the challenges that we face in our day-to-day -day lives. Take our, 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 our centeredness in, a, in meeting our needs, run that up against all the challenges and circumstances we face in our world, and a very strange mix of behaviors can result, even among intelligent, well-adjusted people just like you we can just start acting pretty weird. We can start behaving in some pretty tortured ways because of the mix of our needs and our circumstances. We can start doing some pretty strange stuff. Let me ask this. How much of what you do in your daily life is at root motivated by fear? Have you ever realized this or discovered this? That Man, I'm living in fear. How much of your daily life I mean, over the past year and a half, I mean, how much of the daily life that you live is motivated at root by a sort of fear? Maybe we've been living in fear for so long that we can no longer identify it as such. You know, things have become habituated to it, but maybe we've been living in fear for so long that we would no longer say, oh, that's fear. We can't say, oh, I recognize this, it's fear. But that's what it is. If you are living uh, in, in a posture of pain avoidance, of risk avoidance, rejection avoidance, or loss avoidance, we've got to ask, am I living from a place of, of fear? Perhaps fear has become so commonplace for some of us that it actually feels normal. That fear has become a sort of normal now. It has tragically become our default setting. You know, we all kind of have a default setting, like when everything's kind of stabilized, you're waking up first thing in the morning, you're starting from that default place typically. And some of us wake up in the morning, put our feet on the floor, and we're afraid. We're starting from a default place of living in fear. Would you believe that? Some of you are like, yeah, been there. I even got the t-shirt. 
I don't want the t-shirt. <laughs> I've lived in fear. We know how fear can become normal. It can become our default setting. Whatever the case, when we live in fear for too long, we end up always on guard. And living always on guard, it's exhausting. I've never met anyone that's like, man, I'm scared for my life and it is, it's exhilarating. I love it. Best thing in my life, you know. I mean, no one loves it. It's, it's draining. Always looking over your shoulder, always living in fear, it is exhausting. We end up always on guard. We always end up expecting the worst. We, we live in a sort of hiding. We're making decisions up against a sense of the worst possible outcomes. Our default setting uh, predisposes us to expect things to go badly. We start living as if the worst possible outcome is the most likely outcome. You know, in psychology, there's a word for this. Does anyone know what it is? It's kind of a cumbersome word to say, but it's, it's pretty descriptive. The word, the fancy word for this is catastrophizing. Everyone heard, anyone heard this word before? Catastrophizing. Uh, I've got a good definition for it, but we can start catastrophizing everything. If it's going to go bad, it's going to go bad. It will. Uh, catastrophizing. It is a cognitive distortion, according to psychology today, it is a cognitive distortion that prompts people to jump to the worst possible conclusion, usually with, a very, limit, with very limited information or objective reason uh, to despair. When a situation is upsetting, but not necessarily catastrophic, they still feel like they are in the midst of a crisis. Guys, some of us are stuck in crisis mode. Everything is like, man, I've got a million options, but I bet it's a catastrophe. I mean, we're just stuck on catastrophizing everything. Um, a good example of this would be living through COVID-19. Okay, <laughs> a recent example maybe, in which we, we've collectively lived through this thing in which so much fear of the unknown, so many doomsday scenarios have been constantly pounded into us by the experts, so constantly pounded into us by the authorities and by the media that even the rational among us are still a little bit flinchy. Aren't you? It's like, well... What if? What if the uh, what if the Zeta variant? What if the what if we got to start doubling up on the Greek letter variants? Oh no! Oh no! You know it could be getting better, but probably not. You know, I mean, Fauci comes along, and it's just like, oh no! Would we just all die already? I mean, because it's just like the next bad news, the next shoe drops. It's like, oh, it's going to get terrible. It's just pounded into us over and over again, so we end up living in hiding, being in more than one way socially distant. We want to be distant from everybody because we're just not sure. There's so much uncertainty and so much fear. So um, previously, um, this kind of mindset was, was the domain of conspiracy theorists, theorists and uh, uh, preppers. You know what preppers are? Weirdos that are kind of expecting the world to end, so they've got basements full of guns, ammo, and, and pork and beans. I mean, yeah. This, use, this mindset's always been there, but now we've all started operating with this bunker mentality. We're all stocking up. I mean, we talked about toilet paper. I mean, we talked about bread and milk. I mean, we do. Now we're stuck in this mode. We are expecting doomsday at any moment. I mean, is this close? I mean, are you guys on, tracking with me here? I mean, I feel this in myself as well. 
We have all been traumatized by the coronavirus pandemic, probably in ways that we have not yet fully grasped. But here's what I know. You can't live for a year and a half this way without it affecting you in some way. We've all been affected by this lifestyle that's been forced upon us. But I wonder if we've actually acknowledged that at a personal individual level. We acknowledged and processed how all this difficulty has impacted our lives and how it's changed us. How has it changed us as an individual and as a community, as a society? Have we paused to take time to identify the ways that fear and anxiety have become such a constant companion that um, we've modified our behavior, we've modified our interactions, and we've actually modified our outlook on life. We've got to actually stop long enough to say, hey, what has this done to me? What is this doing to me? If you could step outside yourself and, and observe your life objectively, like stand beside yourself and look at how you're living, look at what you're doing, what would you notice? What would... Um, maybe a past or future you able to look at you right now, what assumptions would you recognize that you've adopted because of this experience? You know, sometimes when we're living it, we can't see it very well because we're too close to it, right? But if you could stand beside it and say, wow, you're assuming a lot of things. You're expecting a lot of things that are just really theoretical. It may or may not happen, but you're living uh, in anticipation of it. Are you still keeping your distance from others? I mean, this all started as being socially distanced, physical space, but man, we've all ended up taking that to, to many deeper levels, haven't we? Are you still socially distant from others? Are you, are you physically, emotionally, and relationally distant from people in your life? Are you still beginning all your interactions from a place of guardedness? Because some of us are. Some of us have caught ourselves doing this thing. Has the invisible menace of sickness become a lingering companion? Has the specter of death become a silent menace in our lives? Now, as Christians, as followers of Jesus who trust in the living uh, God, of the creator God of the universe, is this what God desires for his people? Well, no, it isn't. I'll just say as a blanket statement, God doesn't want us to live in fear. He doesn't want us to be shaped by our circumstances and our worst case scenarios, right? Uh, is this what you desire for you? I think if we took a poll, most of you would say, no, definitely not. I don't want to live uh, misshapen by my fears and anxieties. No, we don't want that for ourselves. Well, get this. What if Jesus wants to lead you, wants to lead me, wants to lead all of us beyond fear and into surprising victory? What if following Jesus should lead us into a, a certain freedom and victory? What if the Holy Spirit desires to guide us into an unencumbered life where we're not pressed down by our circumstances and made us uh, that make us afraid? What if the Holy Spirit desires to guide us into a new kind of freedom and vitality? Now, while living wisely in the face of real risks, not theoretical risks, but living wisely in the face of real risks and being careful to love our neighbors in real practical ways, what if we could break free from this fear? What if we could live free from our penchant for catastrophizing, our, 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 our tendency to catastrophize? Well, here's where I think we can look to Gideon. We can watch Gideon. 
watch him live out his life with God and maybe learn a few things. So as we, re we revisit Gideon in Judges chapter 6 and 7, we find a man. We find a man and a nation that's been living under Midianite oppression. They have been regularly harassed and abused by marauders and thieves for how long? Do you want to remember? Seven years. Seven long years. Think about the psychological and spiritual impact that this must have had on Israel. Think about the spiritual and psychological impact this must have had on Gideon. What do you start to believe when for seven years you've been living on the run, been living in hiding, being oppressed and, and pillaged by the Midianites? I mean, what do you start to believe about reality? Gideon had been living under threat for so long that fear had become a new sort of normal. Fear had become normal for him, so much so that he had started normalizing abnormal behavior. He started abnor uh, normalizing abnormal behavior. For example, what's he found doing? When the story opens, curtain lifts, what's he doing? He's threshing his grain where? In a wine press. Like a place scientifically designed for not threshing wheat. It's like lab coats, you know, my, uh, we've designed a place where you're not supposed to thresh wheat and it's a wine press. We call it a wine press. Well, this is where Gideon is threshing his very wheat. He's threshing his wheat in a wine press. As you know, wheat is meant to be threshed on an exposed hilltop where the wind can come along. And as he throws his grain in the air, the breeze can carry away the hulls and the, 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 the husks of the grain as the kernels fall back down to the grain. It separates the kernels from the husks while wine is in a depression. I mean, his geography mimics his psychology. He's in a depression. He's in a low place. Dark, covered, windless. And he's pressing his wheat where wine is to be pressed in these dugout low basins. Gideon is living a deformed sort of daily life. And he probably doesn't even recognize it. He probably didn't even see it anymore. As weird as it is, as it is for us, for him it was normal. Who knows how many times he had thrust his wheat in that same wine press. He had started living a deformed sort of daily life in hiding, spending his days under a cloud of fear. So um, let's read, uh, start in verse, or chapter 6. Let's just get a start in this story once again if you've not heard it yet. But uh, start in verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. Newsflash. Israel did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains and caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying their crops as far away as Gaza. This, they left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes, coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. <laughs> then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. Right. And so uh, when they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. He said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all the, those who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites, 
in whose lands you now live, but you have not listened to me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Gideon replied, Sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go. Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Okay, so that brings us up to speed on the, the setting for our story, the main character, Gideon. Okay. Now, as a consequence of their evil and their disobedience, Israel had been sorely oppressed by Midian, and then finally, they cried out to God. It got so bad for so long, they're like, all right, we're crying out to God. So they cried out to God for deliverance. So God, in His faithfulness, sent a prophet to Israel. Why? Why did God send a prophet to Israel? And in Him sending that prophet to Israel, what is it saying to them? God remembers them. God has not forgotten them. This visitation of God uh, in response to their crying out tells them that they are not forgotten. They are not abandoned by God. Everything that's happening is part of the plan. It's part of what God is doing in them to shape them, to grow them, to uh, correct them. Okay, so in this sending of the prophet, God is starting his process of deliverance for Israel once again. Despite their towering idolatry in their sin. You can't read this story and get the sense that it didn't matter. Oh, it mattered all right, but God cared, and God had not forgotten Israel. So enter Gideon. Enter Gideon. Gideon is the protagonist in our story. Uh, he is approached by the angel of the Lord, and he is greeted with, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. But, as we've talked about in weeks past, Gideon's mental framework is so rooted in fear and doubt, he immediately complains. God, standing right in front of him, in Gideon's response, complaining. Complaining about God's perceived abuse and neglect. You've abused us, God. You've neglected us. Where have you been? All the great stuff you did in the past? Not happening now. What's going on? Why would you do that to us? But God persists. God knows what he's doing. He's pursuing his plan to grow Gideon into this mighty hero that he announced. Uh, the mighty hero that Israel needs. A mighty hero that would in fact deliver Israel. So God turns to Gideon and sends him in divine strength to do nothing less than deliver Israel. Not just from the Midianites, but from idolatry from their disobedience and sin as well. He's sending them, to Gideon, to deliver Israel. In spite of the excuses, God promises to be with Gideon and to bring victory. So, at this point, you can fast forward a whole page in your Bible. Uh, or, I guess, scroll real fast on your phone. But you can, you can fast forward about a page in your Bible and you'll discover that Israel's path to deliverance and Gideon's path to freedom from fear it led not away from, but exactly through his enemy. 
Oh, man. <laughs> how does God... Oh, no. It's like, here's how I'm going to bring deliverance. Get in. I'm taking you right into the heart of Midian. Right into the heart of the camp of the Midianites. Now, what? As much as Gideon probably preferred a mighty storm from heaven or a barrage of lightning to come and supernaturally destroy Midian, God's plan would be executed through the faith and the courage of Gideon. It would call on Gideon to have faith and courage, and Gideon would have to confront his fear and his faulty thinking. He would be forced to embrace some risk, which he'd been avoiding. He would have to face exposing himself and, and submitting to the foolishness of following after God in order to be used, in order to truly become a, a mighty hero. Okay, let's do that. Let's flip over to chapter 7 in Judges. Judges chapter 7. Let's pick up in verse 1. So Jeroboam, that is Gideon, remember he tore down the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole and sacrificed the, the, the bull that was supposed to be for Baal. He did all that and everyone got mad and started name calling. Oh, you're Jeroboam. Uh, let him contend with Baal or, or let Baal contend with him. Anyway, his nickname is Jeroboam. So Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Herod. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, Whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So I just imagine him like Braveheart, you know, riding in front of his troops like, Whoever is afraid, it might be a little nervous. Now is the time to return to your homes and live this day until the last of your days, knowing that you faced the Midianites and you ran away, you know. And he's like, I imagine some like empowering, like motivating speech. Like, if you're afraid, you can go home now. And what happens? Whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So, 22,000 of them went home. <laughs> 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. Guys, that's over two-thirds of his army. <laughs> oh, no. What did this do, do to Gideon? He's like, Xanax. <laughs> Hit me up. I need some help here. I'm a little nervous. Uh, 22,000 of his 32,000 troops turn and go home. 10,000 leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. But then the Lord told Gideon, oh, it gets better. <laughs> there are still too many. There are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands, all the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, Ha ha, now with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home. But he kept the 300 with him. The Midianite camp was in the valley just below Gideon. That night the Lord said, Get up, go down into the Midianite camp, for I have given you victory over them. 
Verse 10, God knows who he's dealing with here, right? But if you are afraid, Gideon, to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged. Then you will be eager to attack. So Gideon took Pura uh, and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. The armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about a dream. The man said, I had a dream, and in my dream a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp, and it hit a tent, turned it over, and knocked it flat. And his companion answered, Your dream can mean only one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed and worshipped before the Lord. Then he turned to the Israelite camp and shouted, Get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. And he divided the 300 men into three groups and gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. Then he said to them, Keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. As soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horn, blow your horns too, and all around the, all around the entire camp, and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. It was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the 100 men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. Suddenly, they blew their ram's horns and broke their clay jars. Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands, and they all shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horn, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their own swords. Those who were not killed fled to places as far away as Beth Shittah, near Zerarah, and to the borders of Abel Mahola, near Tabith. Then Gideon set... It's tough to stand in front of a room of people and read some of these words. That's tough. Then Gideon sent for the warriors of Naphtali, Asher and Manasseh, who joined in chasing the army of Midian. Gideon also sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down to attack the Midianites. Cut them off at the shallow crossings of the Jordan River at beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim did as they were told, and they captured Oreb and Zeb, the two Midianite commanders, killing Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. And they continued to chase the Midianites. Afterward, the Israelites brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan River. Whew! What a whirlwind story. What a weird story, actually, if you think about it. I'm not sure what Gideon imagined that God's deliverance plan was going to be, but I'm pretty sure that it involved more than 300 men. I think his plan, his imagined ideal scenario, involved more than 300 men who had more than just clay pots, rams, horns, and torches, right? The Midianite army, who were they? They were a tested and uh, capable army. The Midianite army had thousands, thousands and thousands of experienced, well-equipped, well-trained troops that were armed to the teeth who were accustomed to fighting. But more than that, they were accustomed to fighting and winning. They had been winning. So Gideon gathers a force of over 30,000 soldiers to go out and fight against them. God says, get ready to go. So he gathers all the able fighting people in Israel. And he's got over 30,000, around 32,000. 
But God immediately starts challenging his assumptions. And he says, if you go into battle on your terms, Gideon, Israel will brag. Israel will assume that they beat Midian in their own strength. Trust me, I know how you are. I know how Israel is. If you do this, this way, you gain victory, you're going to take a victory lap. You're going to start patting yourself on the back and acting as if you didn't need me at all. I know this about you. I know this. So, he instructs Gideon to tell his gathered army, listen up, everyone who is afraid right now can just turn around and go home. There'll be no consequences, just go. And what happens? Most of them go home. <laughs> they do it. They do it. They, they end up doing just that. They go home. Imagine Gideon's face in that moment. What? Imagine his face. Imagine his face uh, when he sees 22,000 of his guys depart, leaving uh, less than a third of his force with him actually willing to fight. Ugh. I'm not a military tactician, but this isn't good. I mean, it's bad when two-thirds two of your force goes home and you've got a third left. But then, uh, while this was certainly not ideal, it gets even worse. It gets even worse. God then says, guess what, good man? There are still too many. I don't need 10,000. That's still too many. Are you kidding me? Gideon had to be losing his mind at this point. Whoa, no! Are you, if Gideon had fear before, what was he feeling now? Oh no. Oh no, are, are you bent on my destruction, God? Am I doomed? I trusted you, I followed you, and this is the plan? No! Gideon is to further reduce his army by sorting them based on how they drink water from the spring, and it shrinks his army from 10,000 to 300. Now, commentators disagree on what that means, why it was the ones who scooped the water with their hands and lapped it like a dog versus just stuck their face in the water and drank. Some say the ones that uh, knelt and scooped it. It was a more dignified way of doing it. But we've got to be careful there because it says, they scooped with the water in their hand, but then they lapped it like a dog. Who does that? That's weird, right? That phrase, doing something like a dog, was derogatory. That only the, the weirdest and weakest of the group. Uh, what, here's what I think is going on. The brave soldiers, they saw the water, they ran toward it, because they, they were brave enough to stay already, right? So he's like, hey, let's go drink at the spring. They just plunge right in, put their face in the water and just drink. The 300, though, they're so timid, they're nervous, they're not willing to take their eyes off looking around, and so they're scooping into the water, you know, drinking the water, lapping it like a dog, but always on the lookout. What if these 300 were the most afraid of the whole bunch? So you got Gideon leading the fearful ones into battle. I don't know what it means, but um, there is uh, different perspectives on that. Were they feel fearful and on guard, or were they the dignified ones? I don't know, but in the flow of the story, I bet it was the weirdos. I bet it was the ones who were doing a drink in the water in the weirdest way possible, and he's like, weirdos, mount up. You know, it's like, we got the weirdo army now. But what's happening here? Do you see it? God is teaching Gideon a valuable lesson. The path to freedom from fear, it often travels in an unexpected path. The path to freedom 
from fear often travels an unexpected path. The way to deliverance often lies through and not around your enemy. Through and not around your challenging circumstance. That which is causing you fear, the path through it to freedom is through it, not around it. And that's hard for us. With these 300 men, I will rescue you, Gideon, and I will give Israel victory over Midian. What does this tell us about God? It tells me this. God is a good father. He is firm. He's not letting us get by uh, with stuff. He's firm, but he is kind. God is a firm but kind father. He sends confirmation to Gideon as he prepares to fight and confront his fears and to face his enemies. God instructs Gideon. Uh, he says, hey, they're ready to be defeated. Right now, Gideon, you could take this group and wipe them out. But I know your heart, and I know you're afraid. So first, I want you to go down. I need to confirm something in you. I need to confirm something in you. So God instructs uh, Gideon to sneak into the Midian camp and to listen closely. So Gideon and his servant named Pura, they creep in among the tents, overhearing a Midian soldier telling his tent mate about a dream he had last night. Uh, so what was this dream? Well... <laughs> I think, I mean, yeah, I hear dreams like this and I don't think, you know, God's given us victory. I think, well, that was some spicy chili or something. You know, it's like, I ate something weird, you know. But anyway, that, what's the dream? The dream is, uh, I dreamt of a big loaf of bread rolling down a hill. It hit our tent and it flattened it. A big loaf of bread. I mean, it's a big loaf of bread rolls down the hill, hits your tent. Well, what could this possibly mean? Victory is ours! <laughs> so it's a, it's a weird story. But his tentmate immediately d interprets it as a portent of doom. Oh, we're doomed. That loaf of bread is Gideon and the army of Israel. And we're the tent. We're being flattened by them. They're the loaf of bread rolling down the hill into our tent. This encouraged Gideon, who promptly bowed and worshipped God, which is a good thing to do bowed and worshiped God. And, and then shortly after midnight, Gideon and his men, they surrounded the Midianite camp and they blew their trumpets, they broke their jars and they held their torches aloft and they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And the Midianites freaked. They freaked out. It was total panic, total pandemonium, and they actually ended up slaughtering each other. The 300 Israelites, they just stood there and watched. Like, this is bananas. They're killing themselves. They're doing the work for us. Look at that. It was a weird, wonderful thing. The Midianites, they slaughtered each other. So, what does this story tell us then? What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about us? And what does it help us see about the life in Christ? Well, here's some takeaways. Too often, circumstances and experiences, they can lead us to live in fear, and in hiding. They can deform our expectations, they can limit our hopes, and they can crush our dreams. We can easily find ourselves like Gideon, threshing our wheat in a wine press, living under a cloud of dread, uh, convinced of our defeat, and resigned to misery. It's in us. We can do that. But here's the thing. What if Jesus has come to call you out of that place? What if Jesus has come to you too uh, to call you out, to surprise you, and to set you free? This idea of freedom, is this just a one-off story in the Old Testament? No. The idea of freedom, that Jesus came to set you free, this is a theme that runs right through the New Testament. 
In the back of your Bible, you might have what's called a concordance. Do you know what that is? You can look up free or freedom or freed. Look at all the verses in the New Testament about freedom, and you will find why Jesus came. It's to set you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You can look at 2 Corinthians 3.17, Galatians 4.4-5, Ephesians 1.7-8. won't take the time to go there now, but get familiar with your concordance. Holy mackerel! It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do a word study. Check it out. It's crazy. What if Jesus desires to call us out to surprise us and set us free? What if Jesus has come uh, to, to send us not just to be free, but to help others be free as well? How much joy has been lost already? How much joy have you missed out on already by living in fear? How much joy has been lost? How many opportunities have been missed because we've been living in hiding? We've been living in fear. How many days are you willing to let slip by because you're threshing your wheat in a wine press? Here's the thing, and I'll finish with this. The life in Christ, it travels some strange paths, but it always leads us out of hiding. Following Jesus, it'll take you unexpected places, but it's always leading you toward freedom, leading you out of hiding, away from defeated thinking, and setting a path in your life uh, toward hope. Setting a path toward courage and sorting a setting a path toward freedom from fear. So with Gideon, may you hear the Lord say, Mighty hero, I am with you. Mighty hero, your calling awaits. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for the, wow, the, the challenge, the confrontation, the uh, wake-up call that this can be for us. God, we've been living a pretty strange couple years here, and uh, I'm not sure in what ways it's similar to or different than what Gideon and the Israelites were experiencing for seven years, but it's been tough. It's been tough in our comfortable, insulated uh, Western modern world, um, we're not used to living in fear, but that's what we've been doing. And some of us have been in hiding for a long time. And so I pray that you would come to us. I pray that we would be willing to receive Jesus in our midst and hear him call us toward freedom, call us out of hiding, call us to uh, trust him, to actually be willing to confront the, the enemies of fear, of anxiety, of, uh, of defeated thinking in our life. Now we know this about Jesus. He came to save us. He came to purify us, to resurrect us, but He came to set us free. And set us free not just from sin, idolatry, disobedience, but also to set us free from our fear and our deformed thinking, our less than thinking, our, 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 our faulty assumptions about who you are, about who we are, and what we're capable of doing uh, in the strength that you give us. So God, do a, do a work in us today. That thing you did with Gideon, that, that work you affected him, I pray that you would do that in our lives and in, in your own way, in our own needed manner. God, challenge us. Require of us courage and faith. God, help us to go where you send us, trusting that you will be there. Thank you for being kind and for being firm. Thank you for being intent on growing us through our experiences. 
God, may we look back on this experience of this COVID-19 weirdness and uh, just the spiritual stuff, the, 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 the emotional stuff that we may be dealing with. May we be able to look back on it and see how you were at work and how you were healing us, you were calling us forth, and you were setting us free. Lord, I pray for my friends who've been following Jesus. I pray that you'd uh, do a healing work in their life. Help them see clearly themselves how they've been living, uh, not trusting. They've been living uh, afraid, letting fear be more of a master than you. I pray that you'd call them on that, convict them of that, and set them free. I pray that my, for my friends that haven't followed Jesus. I pray that they'd hear that this is the path that leads to life, abundant and free. And so I pray that everyone would respond in faith today in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Hey, we're going to sing a song. This is a chance for you to be with the Lord, to listen closely, help the Lord give you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand what He desires to do, what He is doing in your life. Help Him show you and teach you through His Word what it means to be brave, what it means to have courage and to follow Him and to actually desire freedom, to believe that freedom is possible. So we're going to take a few moments. Pray. Grab someone you can pray with. If you want to pray with me, I'll be at the back. Curtis and Kendi are back there too. But uh, the thing is, make the most of this opportunity. Cool? All right.